1: Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.
0: Welcome to Face to Face. This is a show about change and about what's next. It's a show that wants to ask questions, peel back the layers of our average everyday experience and go beyond scratching the surface. We interview amazing people with incredible ideas and stories who have done wild work Remember that imagination shared create collaboration, and collaboration creates community, and community inspires social change. I'm David Peck, and this is Face to Face. So I just had a marvelous conversation about death. How interesting is that with uh, Dr. Kathy Cordes-Miller. She's the author of a new book talking about death won't kill you. I so love the title. It's like my favorite new title for a book. Uh, Dr. Miller, she's the assistant professor at the School of Social Work, and she's the leader of the Palliative Care Division at, at Lakehead University. Uh, this is a book worth picking up. Uh, you need to read this if you're uh, in your midlife, suffering from a midlife crisis. If you're a parent, if you're getting closer to the end of life, it's it's kind of a workbook. It's very practical. It's poetic. It's 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 a beautiful read, and it's an important read. And so, so I hope you get out there and find it. It's published by E. CW Press. You can find out more about that. Talking about death won't kill you. We get into a little bit about everything. We talk about death literacy and death education, about that death elephant in the room, the work of grief, and how is this for something that we need to think about and think about the implications. Loving in absence, loving in in presence, we talk about uh, palliative care and end of life, and 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 this disconnect in our priorities, and about really what this is all about for for uh, Kathy. It's it's about being present. It's about looking closer. Uh, it, it's not about death and taxes. This is about uh, living life uh, to the fullest. And um, it's yeah. I hope you're going to enjoy the conversation. Stay tuned. It's coming right up. Uh, don't forget. More information. Uh, you can uh, help support what I'm doing. Patreon.com. Uh, you can check that out there. And uh, we're getting close to oh, I don't know, 370 interviews. I, I really should check before I, I record these intros. But uh, we're getting up there. I'm looking for. I'm going to have to start thinking about who my 400th interview is going to be. Anyway, uh, coming right up, Dr. Kathy Cordesmiller Miller uh, talking about her uh, new book and talking about death. Uh, it's uh, it's called Talking About Death won't kill you. Stay tuned. Well, welcome to Face to Face. We're joined by a very special guest uh, with us today. Uh, Dr. Kathy Cortes miller is here with us. She's the assistant professor at the School of Social Work, and she's a lead at the palliative care division there. Uh, thanks for joining us today, Kathy. I really appreciate it.
2: Yeah, I appreciate the invitation. Thank you, David.
0: So we're here to talk about about your new book, Talking About Death won't Kill You, The Essential Guide to End-of-Life Conversations. So so right out of the gate, is this going to be a serious conversation? Or, or, or will this be a lighthearted conversation? Or a I'm, little bit of both?
2: I'm hoping it'll be a little <laughs> bit of both. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah, I think so too, but but you know, how do you talk about death in a lighthearted way is a is a is a fascinating issue. By the way, congratulations on the book. Not only do I love the title, I love the book. It's we you know, we're going to uh, we we're, we're going to get into it in in a matter of seconds here. Um but I uh, you know, I grew up believing that y- you're not supposed to talk about, you know, sex, religion and politics. <laughs> and as I got <laughs> older, I added to that sex re- I sa- I would say, you know, I've often been told not to talk about sex, religion, politics. And I've added death to that in the last, I guess, I don't know, 10 or 15 years. And and as I mentioned to you before, we hit the record button, philosophy's in my background. So, you know, I've spent a little bit of time talking about death and from an existentialist point of view and so on. But I would love to hear, and I think our listeners would love to hear, wh- why why does this conversation matter so much to you? Why does dying matter?
2: Well... Because as Canadians, as Woody Allen might say, there's only two things we can count on in life, death and taxes.
0: Death and (laughs) taxes. Yeah, it's true.
2: (laughs) But in all seriousness, dying and death are an integral part of life and living. And I think if we're going to focus on living life to the fullest, it means that we pay attention to the end of our life as well, so that we can live until we die. And I think that's really what people are asking for when they're talking Mm. about wanting to have choice at the end of life, is that opportunity to live
0: until they die. So it's really about, um, for you, then, it's about being present.
2: It's about being present. It's about having conversations with people around things that might cause us fear mm-hmm. or might cause us sadness, but recognizing that if we bring those out of the closet, so to speak, mm-hmm. that that takes off some of their edge. That right. takes allows us to be able to begin to embrace that so that we're ready for that when it happens. Because we are all going to be intimate with death at least once in our lives, right? right. So, so it behooves us to spend some time thinking about it and planning for it.
0: So is it is it really true in your experience, your research, and so on? I love the story you tell, by the way, about your PhD and, and <laughs> how the silence in the room... <laughs> When you, when you, when you let everybody know what you were going to study, um, which is death. Um, I'd love for you to talk a little bit about that, but is that, has that been your experience in the sense that, you know, sex, religion, politics, death, and there's probably a few other topics in there too, that people don't like to talk about, but death, death is a tough one, right?
2: Well, I I used to make the joke with people that, you know, I would go to a party that wasn't with my work colleagues, and people would say, oh, what do you do for a living or what do you work at? And I'd be like, I'm in the death trade. (laughs) Uh, People would do an absolute double take, like, what? And then I would talk a little bit about the privilege of Mm. doing the work of accompanying Mm. people to the end of life, and immediately they are like, oh, you must be so special. I could never do that. And that would end the conversation right there as well. (laughs) And so, yeah, I was finding that people sometimes would be interested, but other times it would be a, it would stop a conversation. And I wanted to be able to enhance a conversation, so I find using humor and telling stories is a great way to do that.
0: Um, so, so, tell, what's the death elephant?
2: What is the death elephant? Yeah, <laughs> the elephant in the room. That's right. <laughs> so, I I think the reality is is that it is something that we have isolated ourselves from we mm. distance ourselves from the experience of dying we no longer care for our loved ones in our homes as they uh, move towards the later stages of life we use long-term care we use hospital systems we hire out people all those kind of things has changed our systems and our approach to dying and death and as mm. a result mm. we're not familiar with it and so when we're not familiar mm. with something it makes us nervous
0: I do um, and most of my listeners will know I've I've been working and have a real passion for Cambodia and Mm. have been working there, Elizabeth, my wife and I, and uh, I work in international development and Lots of stories to tell, but I have a dear uh, many friends there now. But a dear friend, Cambodian Khmer uh, man and uh, woman and family that we know well. And I remember not that long ago, my father suffered from Parkinson's disease for many years, and and eventually ended up in a long-term care facility, and Mm -hmm. just you know, from a, a, I guess, a practical perspective, but also, you know, kind of a treatment perspective and, you know, falling a lot. And, you know, there's all kinds of issues, right? As <laughs> as you only too well detail in, in your book. But I remember re- relating this to Romania and he was, the look in his face, I mean, he I, and he speaks pretty, pretty good English. I don't speak very good Khmer, but he was a little, I think, taken aback at the fact that we would even think about putting my dad in an institution. And so, this—I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on that—that—that that, that cultural divide as well. You know, I mean, I'm sure there's there's uh, there's a real difference. You know, uh, depending on 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 your community and how you were raised and all of that. I, I heard—I think I heard you saying we kind of wash our hands of it in a sense. We 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 give it to somebody else to deal with.
2: We do because our system is prepared to take it on. In some ways, we have a system that has opportunity for that. Right. Um So, a couple of things love Cambodia as well. Uh, was there a couple of years? Ago? Oh fantastic <laughs> well that'll be that'll
0: be our second podcast. How's that? okay,
2: okay um, but I had a similar experience. I traveled to um, Cuba uh, for a rural medicine conference, and we were looking at different different ways of how medicine could be delivered in different education strategies around healthcare care and so I was sitting in a, a small hospital in the middle of nowhere in Cuba, and we'd had such fruitful discussion, and I started to ask around, you know, how do people in your community die? Who takes care of them? Because I'm looking around at this really, what I might have described at the time as being a resource impoverished kind of hospital, and thinking about, you know, all of our needs and pain medications and pain and symptoms strategies that we have in Canada at the end of life, and one of the physicians looks at me and says, well, they die in their homes. He mm. said, well, who takes care of them? And he looked at me and he said, well, they're family, of course. Right. And I said, well, where do you fit in? And he goes, oh, if they need me, they call.
0: Right. <laughs>
2: and I remember thinking, that's so not what we do. And where I had been working on the hospice unit, we would call family if we needed them, <laughs> as opposed to the other way around.
0: You, you you talk about early on in the book, I seem to remember uh, uh, this, you know, fixing things,
2: mm-hmm. and, and
0: how we're really good at that. From our, our medical establishments, really good at f- our healthcare systems, really well su- s- situated to fix things, but but ironically, not necessarily um, able to, you know, kind of provide that and maybe this is my extension here, but that long-term care. And when I say long-term care, I don't mean the the medical side of it, but the emotional side of it, the the, the community, the relational component.
2: For sure. Um, And in my experience, I would often hear from acute care physicians who were in charge with disease management who would say to an individual, you know what, there's nothing more that we can do. We're going to call on the palliative care team. And it would infuriate me because there was a great deal more that could be done. It may not have been curative, but the palliative care teams have a certain amount of skills and knowledge that can really focus on the quality of living and making the most of the time that people have in terms of pain and symptom management, in terms of mobility and being where they want and being able to talk to who they would like and have that quality of life that is so very important. And so while it may not be curative, there's still an awful lot, and so we need to focus on that being the active part of care, and to recognize that again, we're not fixing it, but we're providing opportunities.
0: And you and you truly believe, and I think I'm with you on this. I mean, I, I mean, it's part of the reason I host a podcast and, and interview, you know, amazing people like yourselves doing wonderful things around the world, because for me, it really is about the conversation. You you mm-hmm. you you say that. I mean, you really come out and, and emphasize that in in the book. it's we, we need to talk about it with friends, family, children, and so on.
2: We do. I think we, we need to bring it into our everyday. And not in a way that we become morbid or anything like that, but it needs to be something that we prepare for. And I, I have a a phrase I often say that we spend more time as Canadians planning for the next car we're going to buy than for thinking about mm. what's going to happen to us at the end of life. Right. So to me, that shows a bit of a disconnect in, in terms of some priorities. But I also think it means that we have shoved it off. And so mm-hmm. by having conversations throughout our life, we'll make it so that when the time comes, we're not in a crisis. That we are able to focus on what matters in that moment and not have to do so much of that planning or that last minute attempt to make things better.
0: Yeah, it's pretty interesting, eh? I mean, would you would you describe um, uh, talking about death won't kill you as as a? Um, by the way, your introduction had me in tears. Oh. <laughs> yeah, uh, the introduction, by the way, folks, is entitled "Why Dying Matters to Me." Um, um, would you call it a workbook?
2: I wanted a real practical guide. Yeah. I'm an academic, and, and so I recognize that some of the research and, and things that I write about in other ways may not reach um, the people who I would really like it to. And so as being privileged in academia, I get invited to an awful lot of talks. And community members were hearing about these, and they would be showing up to these academic talks and asking really good questions and holding us, mm. by us, I mean the palliative care community accountable. So I started doing more talks in the community and trying to share some of my stories and some of my education. And and I realized that's really where I wanted this message to be, is with people. I think healthcare providers, we're always going to do uh, what we're trained and what we're educated to do, but it's our community members who really need to take back their dying.
0: Um, you, you, you talk about, and this is, I think a nice little segue into, it. you talk about compassionate, um, I'm going to see if I can dig up the quote here. I know I highlighted it, but you talk about compassionate communities. Mm-hmm. To, can you, can you tell us a little bit about that? I love, I love the phrase. Uh, I love what it means to me just, you know, as I, as I, as I reflect on it, but what does it mean in this context?
2: So this is Dr. Kelly here's work at, out of the UK and he really highlighted, for many of us, and we're just beginning to grow this movement here in Canada, that death is not a medical event, it's a social process. And so 95% of the time that we spend facing the end of our life is in community with people. It's mm-hmm. with our family, with our friends, with our colleagues, with people that we've known and that we do our living with. 5% of that is spent within our healthcare system. But what we tend to do is spend 95% of our focus, energy, and resources on the healthcare system, and we do a disservice of being able to support and develop the capacity of those people who we've been involved with throughout our lives to be able mm-hmm. to care for us. And so, compassionate communities focus on growing that and focusing on what are the capabilities and what are the capacities of our communities to take care of us.
0: So, so this is a quote um, that you you have uh, near the, near the end of the book. Quote: I live in a community where everybody recognizes that we all have a role to play in supporting each other in times of crisis and loss. People are ready, willing, and content to have conversations about living and dying well and to support each other in emotional and practical ways. Close quote. Almost sounds utopian.
2: (laughs) (laughs) It almost sounds utopian, but it recognizes that we have a responsibility for Mm. each other. And I think as Canadians, we know we have a responsibility for each other. For most of us, or many of us, we think that's in the form of our taxes. Um, but I think we would like to live in those kind of communities where people step up and take care of each other. And I, I think we have the capacity to do that.
0: Well, I I I'm, I I want to live in that community, right? I mean, I don't. I think most of us want to live in this community where 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 we're not only having conversations, but it's actually you know, teasing out in a real practical, relational, meaningful, relevant way to me when I'm here. Yeah. You, you you talk about, I think, a dear friend of yours, Derek, yes. uh, in the book. And I, I so love at the beginning of the book how, how you talk about how we, we have this obligation. We owe it to our families. We owe it to, to the patients. We owe it to our children. We owe it to groups of teens. We owe it to Canadians. We owe it to our First Nations uh, brothers and sisters. And it's it's as if you're saying we have this moral obligation to get this this conversation out there, uh, in, in in a hmm, I guess almost in a new way.
2: Yes, and my friend Derek, if we had just read that compassionate communities quote to him, he would have said, "Oh, that sounds like utopia as well." <laughs> but his community was able to rise up for mm. him, from shoveling his walk so that if he needed to go to emerge in the middle of the night, he could. It was clear to helping. His wife bring in his new queen sized fold out couch because he couldn't get up the stairs anymore right to making sure there was food all those things was how his community stepped up for him
0: so i i want to get i want to i want to talk about sort of the bigger conversation about end of life and and you know i I will never forget the time my father and i he was he was quite young my dad died in his 70s, but he was diagnosed with Parkinson's in his late 40s and probably had it even earlier. And I remember, I remember being quite young, having this conversation with my dad that I would have never expected to about death. And he actually brought up suicide. Right. And this, I, I come out of a pretty conservative background. I mean, I'm the philosopher in the family. I'm the one that should be, I mean, I'm reading Camus. I mean, I'm mm. the guy, you know, uh, the, you know, the m- f- most important question is suicide. I remember being in Florida, buying a copy of a book called The Final Exit, which was by, yeah, I believe, Derek Humphrey yep. or Derek Humphrey's, uh-huh, yeah. which is all about, I don't know if you would argue it's about dying well, but it's it's about committing suicide. Mm-hmm. And And here was my dad lying on my bed, talking a little bit about this, I guess, in relation to this, you know, this terminal disease. Well, h- how much of that was a driving factor for you? You know, the, the Canadian conversation, euthanasia, um, and maybe you don't even want to use that word but because it's got such a perver- pejorative edge to it, but, um, you know, dying well, you know, how much of that is a part of not only your research but, the, you know, should be a part of our conversation?
2: I think it's an Important part of the conversation, but part of my goal with writing this book is to make sure that it's not the only part mm. of the conversation. I think since the legislation has been passed in Canada, and we now have medical assistance in dying, which is a term I don't like. Uh, medically hastened death, I think, is more mm. um, accurate mm. because I think in palliative care we do use a fair bit of medical support to support people till the end of their lives. But sure. I think it's wonderful that Canadians have choice now. And I think it's important that we now turn the conversation to people having true choice at the end of life. And so that access to palliative and end-of-life care isn't a postal code lottery in Canada, and nor is access to MAID. And so we want to make sure that our system is ready. And I think by having the conversations where more people feel like they can discuss what's going to be important to them at the end of life, Will help drive our system to be
0: able to support that as well do we are we af- are we afraid of these conversations as as friends and family members and as parents? I mean, I want to talk about parenting. I have a ten and a twelve year old and and you know you talk in the book about um, you know uh, euphemisms that we use and mm-hmm. we're, we're, you know we 're kind of doing a bit of a, a disservice you know we put we put our uh, what 's one we put our dog to sleep or, yeah. or or whatever the case might be, but we we 're we're, we're, we're not helping. <laughs>
2: Yeah, so I think our language is incredibly important, and, mm-hmm. and that's in part why I, I think medical assistance and dying is not the best term for our new legislation in Canada, um, because I think we need to call things what they are. Right. And I know, for example, having worked in hospital settings for numbers of years, where you know a well-meaning physician or healthcare provider would come into some, to somebody's room and say, "Well, there's nothing more that's available for you." And meaning to tell that person that they are now dying. But what they hear is that they can, you know, go home and that they're going to resume life the way it was before, all those kind of things. And so we need to be really clear with our language in terms of what we're saying. And I think children need that from us as well, even more so than
0: other adults. So instead of, instead of saying there's nothing more we can do for you, saying, okay, it's time for you to head home. It's time for you to get back into your your you know, your 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 the frame of reference you know and, and are most secure and, and 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 that's and that's and the implication is that's where you will die.
2: Or to say to the person that unfortunately the treatment that we had tried is has failed. Right. And that you are reaching the end of your life and that you are going to die. And so, to ask what is going to be important to you at this
0: point right, so just oh, I see what you're saying, so just be, be more realistic, yeah, you talk about um, yeah, I wanted to ask you, you know <laughs> how long did it take you to come to the realization before I would imagine this has been a conversation you've been having with yourself for many years, I would think, but but you know that classic when uh, oh what am what you know my friend's dad just died what do what what do i what do I say to them i you <laughs> know i I have a dear friend who who uh died this past year um tw- sorry two thousand seventeen and a huge loss in my life Lance Muir is his name and I know some people who actually wouldn 't come to the funeral just because they 're so uncomfortable around death right you 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 must have come across that that in your research anyway all that to say when when did you sort of make that connection that no no i you know what I just need to be there for people I need to listen you you talk about caring i think it's do you call it caring communication?
2: Yeah, yeah. caring communication, yeah, and recognizing that it's not so much about what comes out of our mouth that matters, it's about how we show up as people. Right. And I a story I didn't really talk about in the book is that I remember when I was in grade 11, a really close friend of mine died of leukemia in a period of 11 days.
0: Oh, wow, that's... And wow, that's, that's
2: it it was a pretty, pretty sentinel <laughs> event, but yeah. I recognized at the time that people didn't know what to say and that they were really struggling with how to support each other. And I thought there were ways that we could be doing this better. And I wanted to know more about that. And so Hmm. even now, like I'm at the age where my friends' parents are getting sick and they're dying. And sometimes I find myself, Oh, what do I say? And I remind myself it's not so much what comes out of my mouth is that I let them know that I care, that I'm here. Right. And, I share a memory if I had the privilege of knowing the person who had died but if not I just let my friend know that I care for them.
0: You, yeah, so 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 be so basically be a friend.
2: Exactly. Be a friend and be a member of that compassionate
0: community. Yeah. We're talking, we're now, we're back to compassionate communities.
2: Exactly. And
0: we kind of, you know, so, so are you, so would you say you're advocating in a sense almost for making this a part of our curriculum or is this a, you know, I mean, parents don't want to teach their kids so they send them to school. You know, I mean, that's a ridiculous statement. I mean, I'm gifted in hyperbole, Uh, but but often isn't that the case? Oh, I don't need to teach my kids math because they're going to get that from Mr. Miller in grade.
2: You have a, a, so I think we get we're trying at this point to think about how to get death education into mm. the curriculum and we often hear oh we can't add another thing to the curriculum
0: <laughs> I love that phrase by the way death education Yes, yeah. yeah, so education. so funny
2: but I, I think when we are doing already our curriculums encourage sex education they talk about uh, development they talk about physical education there's all those different components and I think what we're advocating for is that we don't avoid death as part of it because young people are going to have questions they're going to want to know more about that and we need to be able to support not only them but we also need to be able to support the parents because kids are going to come home and they're going to want to talk about stuff with their parents and so we need to be able to increase parents death literacy as well.
0: Death literacy, yeah, no, I, I think so. It's got to st- well, I mean, it's got to. St- it doesn't have to start in the home, but that's not a that's not a bad place, is it?
2: No, I think the home is a great place when parents see kids, you know, wondering, you know, what happened to the bird when it hit the window mm. and it died, or the mm. roadkill, mm. and asking questions. We need to allow those questions to happen because kids learn about death anxiety from us. They are born mm. curious about the world mm. around them, and that includes dying and death.
0: Can you tell, um, you've got a great story in the book about uh, Nick.
2: Oh, yeah, my nephew.
0: Nick and maybe, and me, I'm just trying to find a Nick and a lollipop, is that right?
2: Oh, Ooh. grandpop.
0: Grandpop, there you grandpop. go. Sorry, not a lollipop, grandpop. Yeah, oh, it's no. a c- classic story, though.
2: <laughs> sure. Nick was quite young when his great-grandpop died, and he was at that stage where people would wonder, including his dad, whether or not he should be included in the funeral. And um, my husband's family was quite Catholic at the time, so it was a Catholic funeral with all the bells and whistles, including an open casket.
0: Right. Always loved the open caskets. Yeah,
2: Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. And so I had... Spent some time talking with my brother-in-law and said, "You know what, Nick has has questions. We've answered them. We've had discussions. I think bring him because there was nobody to watch him that evening, and it was part of the family and
0: and three. Ritual. Th- I just found it in the book. Three three years three years old.
2: Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So
0: young. In- and so I, I love yeah. the title of the chapter. By the way, inquiring minds want to want to know,
2: know. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And so what Nick did, so, you know, as adults are, we're all away from the casket and having conversations. And yeah. Nick runs up and pulls himself up with the casket and leans over and gives Grandpa a big wet kiss and says, see you soon, but not too soon. It's
0: so great. I'm getting goosebumps. <laughs> um, I love what you say here. Uh, Nick appeared to understand death in a way that many adults wish they could.
2: Yes. A- and I think that is key when we think about the work of grief or the work of Mm. coming to terms with what death is going to mean for us is that it's not the end of a relationship. It's Thomas Attick, I think, writes about this so wonderfully when he talks about moving from loving in presence to loving in absence.
0: Mm. Mm.
2: And I think kids get that. And I think part of how they grieve in terms of the ebb and flow of grief, moving from being excited about something to being full-on emotional sadness, we see that very
0: quickly in children. I love, I love that Nick said, I'll see you, see you soon, but not too soon. It's <laughs> fantastic. I love the confidence, you know, yeah, it's just, yeah. it's just so lovely. And there was a, a, a real, uh, yeah, just a real acceptance there, you know, I mean, um, yeah, really, really delightful, really quite wonderful. And I think, I think kids so often teach us so many things that I think they remind us too, don't they, children? they
2: they, it, they do they do and i also want to say kudos to Nick's dad who took the time to answer some of those questions and spend some time with him as well. And, and to recognize that it wasn't just his job, but there were other adults who could be supportive of Nick through that too.
0: Well, and I wonder too, and I don't want to, I don't want to, you know, my parents' generation, because I think it it happens today and it happens in many places, but there would be a sense of impropriety there, right? Uh, Where others would be be horrified. (laughs) What's this kid doing in jumping up onto the casket? This is disrespectful right and and so on instead of thinking of it from a playful and a, a compassionate community like perspective
2: for sure and and to make space for that to be able to happen yeah
0: so what about the afterlife where where are you on that do you do you, do does that come up for you in your classes do do students I mean do students bring that up at all
2: I- I would say they do. I think a lot of them, like so many of us, are are wrestling with that sure, and yep. wondering sort of where that plays into all this. And I think that those are important conversations that I think there needs to be space for, and there's lots of room for diversity within as well.
0: Well, I think your comment, too, what I love, um, did you, um, hmm, Did you say the work of grief, I think you said, uh, and then death and this idea of death literacy. I mean, every tradition, it seems to me, every, every religion, uh, uh, most cultures have their, uh, their ways of dealing with death. And I suppose some are more, more healthy than others. And, and, um, um i wonder to what degree that's you know that every everybody's going to experience grief in a different way i mean and yeah. and i think i think what i really wanted to ask you and i think the part of the reason for bringing up the whole uh, you know that after life question is um the grief process you know mm. how how do we go through it what what i mean uh, are there steps that you go through? You know, are there six things, are there eight things, are there twelve? I mean, you know, some some people would say if you want to talk about the afterlife, well, then you're actually not really talking about what what's happening here currently, right now, right in present, and so on. And and yet, and yet, everybody's going to have their own way of of coming to terms with. Uh, I love that phrase, by the way, loving in presence.
2: Yeah, I, that for me is a really strong phrase that really describes the work of grief because after somebody has died the world as we know it has ultimately been rocked it's Hmm. lifted that Hmm. person is not going to be physically present anymore but we recognize that for most of us we don't actually ever get over grief it's something that we learn to live with and it's something that we figure out and we figure out the world and what it's going to be like without that person physically in it anymore and to me It's about the meaning-making perspective. So I don't necessarily align with any kind of task theory or stage theory as it pertains to grief because I think we all move through that in our own way as Mm -hmm. we strive to make meaning of the event. And I would say that meaning shifts as we move through life as well. So when I talked about my friend Heather who died, so... The Kathy of grade 11 attached different meaning to that than I do today or I did right. when my daughter was born or any of those kind of things. Am I still grieving her death? Yeah, I, I miss her. I wish we'd had a chance to raise our babies together like we right. had planned. Right. But am I actively grieving Or No. Have I figured out how to live in the world without her? Absolutely. Do my kids know who she is? You betcha.
0: Yeah. I mean, I mean in, in a sense, almost if if you don't, do that. If you don't unpack it that way or come to terms with that way, and is it, can, can you almost say that's sort of disrespectful to the relationship, to the person that you, you know, so dearly miss and so dearly loved?
2: I, I think so. I think grief is the cost we pay for having loved someone. It's
0: mm, nice. Re- yeah, it's so good.
2: I remember after Derek died and, and Derek and my son have had a really close relationship and actually Dawson would describe Derek as being his best friend and he was Mm -hmm. invited to all of his birthday parties. And when Dawson was particularly sad at one point, he said, he goes, it would be worse if I didn't feel so sad because he died. Right. And I thought that was just such a lovely way of recognizing that it's because we have loved so hard and because that person has been so important to us that we are engaging with
0: grief so deeply. So what, what do you say to, to people, you know, right now dealing with, with grief who just, you know, you you can't seem to get over that hurdle, that loss, that, um, that, 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 that immediate sense of pain. I mean, it's so visceral. It's so, um. You know for anyone who's experienced a death, I think it's so I mean for the most part, I think it's so in your face in mm-hmm. a way unless i think unless we've learned to to totally sweep things you know under the cover uh, under the under the you know under the carpet kind of thing and and just and just completely look the other way, turn a blind eye, if you will
2: so I think both extremes do us a disservice right I think when we shove it under the carpet, we're doing ourselves a disservice when we get into what I would describe what I heard from you is that you're stuck in your grief.
0: You're stuck in your grief, yeah. That
2: does us a bit of a disservice as well. Mm. And so mm. I grieving takes time, and we need to allow ourselves the time and the space to do that. But we also need to allow ourselves the time and the space to continue with living uh, within that. And so if a person is truly stuck, I think then they need to um, enlist the help of a counselor or as a psychotherapist to be able to work w- through some of right. those kind of things. But for the most part, grieving is a normative life event. And in 95% of the cases and situations, people can begin to figure out how to live with their grief independently with a caring community.
0: I was just going to say, you know, I'm glad you used caring community because I, I went immediately to compassionate community and, sa- and kind of thought, you know, if, if I am surrounded by people who, who I love today and I am loving in the present... Right. With the people around me, isn't that a part of the stepping stone to ultimately, you know, attending to grief, you know, having others listen, telling stories, coming to terms with it in a in in the very way that you kind of, you, the, you know, uh, uh, through conversation.
2: Yes. A- and the memories and, and the
0: memories. You, right.
2: How to How to keep that legacy going.
0: Yeah. How to keep that legacy going. I mean, isn't, isn't that often, uh, it's such, it's sort of a cliche line, isn't it? Something, you know, you're going to live in my memory or in the memories of people forever, but there's a real, there's a real truth to that too. Right.
2: And I would say yeah. it can be, although it's a, a cliche thing, it's also infusing our daily activities with meaning. Mm. Um, mm. so for, Again, to use my friend Derek as an example, with my son, Derek had a favorite type of candy. And right. Dawson, every once in a while, will be like, "Hey, I want this kind of candy because I'm missing Derek," and it's just that connection piece.
0: Right. Yeah. No. How How do we stay to connect connected exactly. to the yeah, to to the real memories? Well, I love to how that that took me to um, living in the moment. and being present. And uh, 1999, uh, the film American Beauty, I think often misunderstood by a lot of people, but at the time was one of my faves. And interestingly enough, I think the writer on that was also the writer, Alan Ball was the writer of Six Feet Under, which I was going to joke with you and say, is that your favorite show? (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
2: i do like six feet yeah same same make the connection though that was the same uh,
0: yeah but 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 in american beauty the tagline and the whole film is about looking closer yeah and there's a character rick i'm just pulling this out i think it's ricky is his name and he photographs things and there's a scene where he's photographing um or videoing a um a dead bird and a young woman that he's kind of falling for wonders why what why would you do that and he talks about this beauty mm. and i remember it i think i remember what is that 19 years ago it didn't make me uncomfortable but i remember going wow i i wonder how people are reacting to that you know beauty beauty and death yeah. that that whole idea that and and but but it was really about looking closer seeing the detail and 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 being present with others really is what that film for me was all about yeah I um I think I'm going uh, uh, to, we could go on, I'm sure, but I, I've, got <laughs> a, I've got a great quote here, and, and I know you've got to get to a class soon. So um, near the beginning of the book, I, I highlighted a few quotes throughout, but, but one that um, I'm just going to read for everybody here from um, Talking About Death Won't Kill You, The Essential Guide to End-of-Life Conversations. We're talking with Dr. Kathy Cordes Miller. Quote, we need to bring death out into the open. Witness it talk about it, learn about it, and recognize that dying matters because it is an inevitable part of our lives. And in so doing, we can be more prepared, make better decisions about the kind of care we want, and ultimately improve the dying experience for ourselves and those we love, quote, I mean, I think that was about three pages into the book. Mm -hmm. You know, you don't, you didn't waste any time, you know, laying, laying out. And isn't that really what this is all about? Let's, you know, let's use our time wisely. And, 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 um, yeah. Um. Well, what a what a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much. Uh I uh, Hey, you know what we didn't maybe well, we kind of touched on it a little bit with Nick and 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 uh Grandpop and so on. But any thoughts just before we wrap it up any thoughts for parents, you know, how, how any any tips on how, how you know, other than reading your book, um <laughs> any tips on how to get this out in the open in in a way that's helpful and meaningful and and safe, I guess.
2: Yeah. A wide variety of tips, but I want to do a quick plug. If yeah, can, go, go, yeah. things that the compassionate community in which I live in is doing. So, we have a grassroots hospice without walls here called Hospice Northwest, and we heard from our community a number of years ago that they wanted to talk more about dying and death because we were doing hmm. all sorts of great uni- university education, but our community was asking for some as well. Okay. So we've started an event called Dialogs. Die,
0: Oh, nice. It's Thank
2: you. Love it. Me too. As modeled after a death cafe, a death cafe tends to be more organic and just brings people together. And our community was asking for some education. So next Thursday night on the 29th, we are going to have a conversation about talking to children about dying and death. And so one of the things that I think we can be doing as a community is brainstorming how we can support uh, parents and teachers, and community members to do this better. And so, well, so good. you know, I can talk about what works with my kids, and I can talk about yep. what I would like to see from an academic perspective. I think when our community gets together and brainstorms about what we can be doing a little bit differently in terms of recognizing when deaths happen, how do we talk about them, and how do we create resiliency and support our, our young people to be able to take care of themselves as well through some of this, um, I think that, to me, is the essence of really developing our capacity to be mm. able to do that.
0: That's no, it's so, so great. I love dialogue. It's hysterical and, <laughs> and meaningful all at the same time. Well, listen, thank you so much for your time today. We've been talking with Dr. Kathy Cordes-Miller about her new book, Talking About Death Won't Kill You. And, belie- and, and believe me, it's so true. Uh, the subtitle of the book is The Essential Guide to End of Life. Conversations. Kathy, thanks so much for your time today. I really appreciate it.
2: Thank you very much, David. It was wonderful
0: to have the
1: conversation. Hold up.